0: This is The Stateless Man for the pursuit of individual liberty beyond arbitrary borders, oppressive governments, and myths of national obligations. If you value liberty and are willing to migrate and vote with your feet, you've come to the right place.
1: broadcasting live from the Fort Lauderdale area in Florida. Uh, we're pursuing Liberty Beyond Borders. That is financial independence, personal sovereignty, and international living. Uh, if you want to check out more of the content of this show, go to thestatelessman.com or in particular, join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash thestatelessman. Today we've got, mate, a lot, a lot to get to, a lot to discuss. We're going to spend the first hour examining how to engage in debate or rhetoric uh, with particular interest in the open borders topic because there was a debate at the end of October, and I only just got to it uh, last week, I got to write about it, that that was discussing, it wasn't quite open borders, but very close it was saying, should people be able to accept a job anywhere? And I watched this debate, it was about almost two hours long, and in my view, the most concise or the clearest case, by far, actually failed to uh, achieve uh, support with the audience. In fact, it went the opposite that it lost support. Huh. So, so we're going to examine why that is. I've got Bill Mullen. He is a long-time libertarian and homeschooling father, and he is known as an expert in rhetoric and he has been in, he's a graduate of uh, Columbia University in economics and he's also been a sought after guest in radio stations in Colorado, although he now bases himself in the New York City area. And then in the second hour, I'm going to be examining this fiat currency uh, monetary system we live under, unfortunately. And I think many of us just don't realize or don't understand exactly the nature of this system and just maybe by accident, maybe the old censors or people who were running television in New Zealand didn't realize. But there was a, a show in New Zealand that did a little expose on the way the monetary system works. I could hardly believe this. It got through. And I've got a man from, who was interviewed in that clip from Positive Money New Zealand. He's going to be on. His name is Don Richards. He'll be on in the second hour. All the way, yeah, from New Zealand, it's four, it'll be four, four a.m. down under. So we're going to examine his proposals for alternatives and why the status quo is problematic. It is, let's just say, more than problematic. But the great news is that we are entering a period where there is there are alternatives. If you're not examining this, I suggest you do because the conventional systems of monetary exchange or money money supply. They're going to crumble because they're obsolete, and they they were obsolete all the time. They only stayed stayed in position given the force of government, but that will crumble uh, given um, given the alternatives. Now, so let me just explain this open borders problem a little bit. And I wrote on this. I didn't spend too much time. I mean, the 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 debate took forever. I mean, like two hours and a lot of lot of extra extra talk was in between or assigned to this debate but let me just just briefly overview it the question or the motion at hand in this debate which was done by intelligence squared and i've written about it on the pan and post blog the canal i'll put a link up at that to that on the facebook page if you haven't gone to the stateless man facebook page please do so facebook.com forward slash the stateless man or follow us on twitter which is just uh, at the stateless man now so i've posted that link on the page, but basically the, the headline of the article is The Open Borders in Passé and The Art of Persuasion. And this was a, I'd describe as dysfunctional and messy debate, uh, but there are, there are two reasons why it's worth our interest, and this is what's going to lead into the discussion with, with Bill Mullen. First, the what I see is disjointed and confused arguments and the participants ignoring and talking past each other. This reflects the broader stalemate on immigration reform. Second, The most economically rigorous and concise engagement by far from Kaplan appeared to be powerless. Not only did he not not sway attendees, they overwhelmingly shifted against the idea in his presentation. So on the the affirmative side saying you should be able to take a job anywhere or the quote let anyone take a job anywhere. That's the motion at hand was uh, Brian Kaplan and his colleague was Vivek Wadia. I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but of Singularity University. Brian Kaplan is a known... I'm not sure what I want to... G- I don't want to give him label him just yet, but basically he is a known economist at George Mason University. I've seen him speak a bunch of times. I've met him. I think he's uh, extremely sharp and worth your time. So they were giving the affirmative, and the against was Kathleen Newland of the Migration Policy Institute and Ron Owens, former publisher of the American Conservative. Now... I'm, I've got a few clips set up for you just so you can hear the two arguments before we bring in Bill. We, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get the studio to play clip one. This, this clip, this is Brian Kaplan giving his closing statement. And I think I could hardly say it better myself. And then we'll, we'll hear from, uh, Bob Unz. So let's, let's roll with that. Or Ron Unz.
2: Thank you, Kathleen Newland. A motion, let anyone take a job anywhere, and here to summarize his position supporting this motion, Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Kaplan.
0: As Vivek said, it is hard to believe that we're actually even debating let anyone take a job anywhere. If our opponents had told you that the laws prevent women from working, or the laws prevent Jews from working, or the law should prevent blacks from working, you wouldn't just disagree, you would be appalled. You would be horrified to hear such words coming out of their mouth. You should be equally appalled when someone says the law should prevent foreigners from working. Criminalizing the employment of women, Jews, blacks, or foreigners is doubly evil. It denies workers basic human rights, and it deprives the world of the full benefit of workers' talent and ambition. Open borders should be a bipartisan and by ideological cause. Conservatives should oppose immigration restrictions in the name of freedom, free markets, small government, the work ethic, meritocracy, and Horatio Alger himself. Liberals should oppose immigration restrictions in the name of equality, reducing poverty, equal opportunity, non-discrimination, social justice, and the global 99%. When the government forbids American farmers to hire Mexican farm workers, how can a conservative not see the oppressive hand of big government crushing the entrepreneurial spirit? When the government forbids American restaurants to hire Haitian dishwashers, how can a liberal not see a heartless legal system diabolically promoting poverty and discrimination? Please, let anyone take a job anywhere. It is the right way to treat your fellow human beings. It will transform the world for the better. And it will cost us less than nothing.
2: Thank you, Brian Kaplan. And that concludes closing statements. And now it is time to see which side you feel argued best.
1: Before the next break, we don't have time to play the second clip from Ron Unz of the American Conservative. Uh, but I will actually, what, what I'll do, so we've, we've only got one minute. I'll just go through the results, what happened in this event. So I'm kind of giving you the, cut, the, the results before you hear the full explana- explanation. But... We just have one minute to play with, so I'm going to give you a go down. So basically, before this debate took place, and I'm going to ask you to hold on to those thoughts from Brian Kaplan, which I I think he did an excellent job, particularly that closing statement. We could just discuss or debate how he presented the earlier portions or engaged in the fuller debate, but that final statement was great. Before the event took place, there was a, was a, a poll of the audience, and the four people, the people who are four moving anywhere, got 46%. I'm going to make you hold for the the final results. So don't go anywhere. This is The stateless Man. This is the stateless man and we're pursuing liberty beyond borders. I do have Bill Mullen with me. Welcome to the show, Bill. Hello,
3: Fergus. Thanks for having me.
1: Glad to be here. Right on. Yeah. So Bill is my uh, expert on rhetoric today and I'm going to, (laughs) I'm eager to have him analyze this debate. He, uh, he read my article on it and he's had a look at uh, the actual debate itself. Now we, we, just before the, before the break, I played a clip from Brian Kaplan, his closing remarks. Now, we've got Ron Unz as well. I've got a clip from him, so you can compare the two. The second one, he is the former editor of the American Conservative, and he is arguing against the motion that people can get a job anywhere. So let's roll that number, clip number two.
2: So our motion is this. Let anyone take a job anywhere. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Ron Unz, he's former publisher of the American Conservative magazine. Ladies and gentlemen, Ron Unz. Over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, there's been a tremendous bifurcation of American society. The wealthier have gotten much wealthier. The rest of the people have not. We've reached the point right now where the top 1% of American society, which has sometimes been in the headlines, the top 1%, has as much wealth as the bottom 95%. In the last few years, since the 2008 financial crisis, virtually all of the gains in wealth and income have gone to that wealthy elite and virtually none of it to the rest of the population. Now, that's a bad situation. To make a bad situation like that much worse would be to cause the vast majority of ordinary American workers to suddenly have to compete for their jobs against everybody in the rest of the world. It would destroy their incomes. What we're talking about, again, is something that certainly would benefit the best educated, the wealthy elite, the affluent people in society. To be honest, the proposal that we're talking about probably would benefit many, perhaps even the majority, perhaps even the vast majority of the people sitting here in this audience. I mean, we're talking about New York City, one of the wealthiest cities in the United States. We're talking about the sort of people who attend a debate like this. Many of you might not, and many of you might not be wealthy right now, but you're young in your careers; you certainly have a lot of prospects. Probably many of you would benefit from something that would drive down the wages and income of <coughs> 60, 70, 80 percent of the rest of the people in society. But it would make the political situation much worse than it is right now. What we have to do is make changes in other proposals and other aspects of our society to alleviate the problems we've had over the last 20 or 30 years in terms of this wealth gap, not make them much worse. The proposal we're talking about would be devastating to the vast majority of Americans and should be voted against.
4: Thank you, right.
1: <clears throat> let me So let me uh, just give the final results, though. So I mentioned before that the there was a poll taken of the audience, and before the event, or as, as people arrived, there was a 46% portion block in favor of the motion, 21% against and 33%, so a full one-third were undecided. Afterwards, the four actually lost ground to 42%, and the against increased dramatically from 21% to 49%. So Ron Owens, the, the man you just heard heard from, gained enormously, and in only 9% or fewer than 10% were remained undecided there's one before i get to bill and I'm, I'm eager to hear his response to this but just before i get to bill uh-huh. there's one particular element of this debate which just astonished me and i think it reflects it's sort of like a deeper reflection of the problem here now this man ron Unz, he was you know the, the american conservative former publisher but he made a a, a, a an enormously revealing statement which I, I can hardly believe he got away with but he did
2: I'm going to run another clip from him discussing his knowledge of economics. I'm laboring under a disadvantage in this debate because not only am I not a trained economist, I've never even taken a class in economics. I've never even opened econo- an economics textbook. I personally don't claim to really understand of most economics. I'm not convinced everybody else understands economics that well either. But one part of economics that is very well established, a very simple issue, is the law of supply and demand.
1: Right, and I, I cut him off there because it was just too painful to continue, actually. But, so, <laughs> basically, this man admitted that he had absolutely, just zero knowledge of economics, and then he proceeded to basically uh, use economics as his argument, which I just thought was astounding, and I can hardly believe people did not catch, catch him on that. Uh, but Bill Mullen has seen this debate and he just heard those clips and he is my rhetor- rhetorician on, the, on this occasion. <laughs> now, just why don't you explain for us, just give us your overview perhaps as to why, uh, this Uns man so soundly defeated his opponent.
3: Well, I am personally not surprised after having uh, looked over the debate. And I should uh, qualify any comments that I didn't listen to the entire thing. There's a section in the middle that uh, I missed. So uh, sure. if I happen to make make a comment that, oh, they didn't respond uh, to this in this particular way, and maybe they did in the part that I missed, uh, please forgive me for that. But I believe I, I did watch enough to get a, a handle on what was going on uh, there. And, uh, yeah, you know, as much as I also respect Brian Kaplan and my personal views lie uh, with those of Brian Kaplan, uh, you know, he's he totally lost this debate uh, rhetorically. Mm. Um, now, uh, all right. So first, uh, you know, let me keep in let's keep in mind what rhetoric is. I mean, uh, now, first of all, when I talk rhetoric, I'm talking about uh, the Aristotelian, Aristotelian version. Uh, you know, uh, he he wrote the original book on rhetoric that, uh, you know, uh, kind of right, shaped okay. the field. And, okay. you know, a lot of people have, have maybe uh, argued against or, uh, that, but that, that's my understanding of it. And so, you know, rhetoric is broken up into three parts, as Aristotle saw it. Uh, there's the logos, the ethos, and the pathos. Uh, mm-hmm. now, and the logos is a reasoned argument. Uh, it's not logic. Logic is a subsect of logos. Uh, I think that should, okay. should make that clear. Uh, logic is the, uh, deductive method. Uh, there's also the inductive method, the scientific method. So, you know, the mm. whole exchange of studies and things of that nature is also, is, is all logos. Uh, the reasoned approach. There's, uh, pathos, which is, uh, the emotional appeal. Uh, and then there's ethos, which is, uh, it's the authoritativeness of your argument. It's the uh, willingness of the people, uh, to believe you over the other guy, mm. all else being equal. Uh, I and gotcha. what I think where I think this debate went wrong for Kaplan and his partner, I forget his name, I'm sorry, but uh, where it went wrong was in the ethos, right? Because uh, in the Logos, you know, of course, he's a very well-trained economist. I thought he had a, uh, an effective argument logically. Uh, I wouldn't say that rhetorically, but he had an effective logical argument. Uh, and if you noticed his tactics at the beginning of the debate, they tried to inject an element of pathos, A lot of their argument was... He did try and bring in
1: the moralism into the debate, yes.
3: Exactly, and that was, not not only bring it in, but that was their opening, uh, sequence of attack, right? Right. And and he wanted to point out, it's immoral, it's not right, it's discrimination, it's not what we stand Mm. for, etc. Uh, so he tried to bring in the pathos, and so I can't, uh, fault him for that. Uh, and, and I can't really fault him for their ethos either, uh, because a lot of ethos is beyond a person's control. Um so what ethos is the authoritativeness of the argument and that encompasses a lot of things now aristotle uh himself only considered ethos to be the words that you said um and the uh structure of the argument uh and i personally have a broader understanding of ethos to me ethos well, just, encompasses just, just,
1: Bill i'm yes. going to ask you to hold there we we are nearing sure. the break i want to say in Very this good. particular on this in, with this particular topic i really would love to have people chiming in I'll, I'll get Bill to explain a little bit more after the break, but basically you can call in 1-800-313-9443. And uh, so, but don't go anywhere. Are you listening to The Stateless Man? And we've got Bill Mullen uh, to explain this, this debate, so stay with us. This is the Stateless Man. We're pursuing Liberty Beyond Borders, broadcasting live uh, from Florida. And I want to note before we get back into the content that RBN, this this great network, is having an end-of-year pledge drive. Uh, if you want to sh- give donations of $100 or more, you receive an RBN coffee mug and T-shirt. Uh, you can give uh, smaller donations as well. You just call uh, 1-800-724-2719. That's one 800 724 Two seven one nine to support independent media, and I'm proud to be on this network. So, we before the break we had Bill Mullen breaking down the argument from from Brian Kaplan and his view as to he was not surprised that Brian Kaplan lost soundly in this debate, and uh, so but he was he mentioned the logos, pathos, and ethos. Is that correct? Uh,
3: yes, those are the three parts of uh, rhetoric as uh, as Aristotle saw it.
1: Right, and, um, you, you, and I broke you yes. off as you were getting to the last one. Do you want to finish off what you were saying there?
3: Sure. So I was talking about the ethos, which is where uh, Kaplan, I think, lost the debate. Uh, I was saying that Aristotle uh, ascribed the ethos to only be within the words or the argument, uh, but I take a broader view which uh, encompasses everything from the credentials of the person, uh, right, so uh, an Ivy League professor is going to have more ethos than, you know, some janitor off of the street, in uh, terms of sure. you know his sure. area of expertise, the, the uh, speaking voice of a person, right? Uh, I don't know if you've. I, I how, my wife. How, how you how you days.
1: can relate to someone, basically?
3: Uh, yes, exactly. Well, that, but uh, but how how much you impact someone and how much they want to like you and want to believe mm. you, right? It, oh. Your looks are a huge impact on that. Um, oh. You know, so uh, a lot of things that you can't control, right? You can't control your looks. You can't control your uh, voice. Well, to uh, a but there are a lot of things that you can control. And uh, oh. I feel like in that sense, Kaplan was very bad in comparison to his opponents. If you listen no. to his opponents, they were both very grandfatherly in their tones. They spoke in uh, a very res- uh, receivable manner uh, that didn't yes. irritate anyone. Whereas if you listen to Kaplan, he speaks at a, a slightly fast pitch or a fast rate of speech he has a high very pace. high uh, ac- accusatory hostile tone in his voice mm-hmm. so right away uh you know on kind of on that emotional level people are not are going to respond less to him uh, than the other than his opponents and that and that's ethos well and, and I, you know and I should say that he also made a big mistake uh, in the, he lost soundly that his the opening remarks. Uh, and you played a clip, uh, from his opponent where he was saying, Oh, I'm not an economist. I'm, you know, mm. I've never even opened a textbook, but blah, 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 blah. And you're like astounded that he, uh, is, you know, is that. not being called on that. And, and yeah. I, I'm not astounded at all because of, uh, of Thierry. It's very clever, uh, what he did. So first of all, ethos itself is broken up into three parts. So what he did was he, uh, gave up a little bit of the one part to gain a lot in the other two parts. So the one, mm. the part that he gave up a little bit was was the phronesis which is the practical skills and wisdom which Kaplan has all over him. So it sure. makes sense to kind of uh you know uh sacrifice that part a little bit and say okay, I don't know anything compared to Kaplan. But uh he is gaining in the arete and the eunoia which is the the goodness of of your of your person. So he's presenting himself as humble and Unoya uh, is the goodwill towards the audience, right? He's uh, he's being very honest with them, them because they sure. also don't know too much about economics, yeah. most likely. Yeah.
1: Well, we we do have okay. a, someone online. So, are you ready to take a take a question from the from the callers? By all means,
3: bring it on. Yes,
1: let's go. We've got uh, Chris from Las Vegas. Go ahead, Chris.
3: Well, good
5: morning, and I must say it's a most provocative discussion this morning, and given that. Voltaire observes that before we speak, we must define our terms. We look to the law of rhetoric as taught by the legal merchants, or the mercenaries posed as merchants in the legal trades, and they have their own definitions, and they have what they term the law of rhetoric by Jean-Paul Sartre, which states specifically that one must lie in order to speak the truth, (laughs) and this is... Well, it's not my words. It's what they teach in no, middle no.
1: school. Go ahead, go ahead, sir.
5: Well, I'm merely saying that these your your guest is very, very learned, and I I respect his knowledge. But as we twist the meanings of words and the intents, and create this just, just back back up. Do you, do, you,
1: do you think do you think Bill Mullen is twisting the meanings of words?
5: Well, no, no, no. I think his his studies are absolutely correct. But you must know where you are and who you are to know where you stand and know what law operates, to know what theater you're in, to understand the relevancy of the meanings of the words that you use, which can be
1: very... So given our discussion today, do you see any particular words that are being misused?
5: Well, I see lots of insinuations that meanings, feelings and how you frame your argument are the most critically relevant as opposed to the fact-based truth and law that underfines the actual definitions of the words in the venue that you're in. If you're on a stage as an actor you can certainly adopt any role that you seek to fulfill. However, in life, if you merely portend or proffer to be an individual with some capacity of knowledge and relevancy and you may be an effectuous actor and give a great presentment of your position okay, well, we, I, think, I think
1: we, we agree that the, the, that's what we're discussing today. We, we think that the concern is that logic or leg, Lagos, that is important but is obviously not going to win the day. Do you, have a, do you have a particular question? I need to, I need to round that off there.
5: Well, I merely say that logos really is a symbol, a sign of ball, or an indicator of something that doesn't really have any relevancy on what the truth that underlies the
3: sign or the symbol is.
1: Okay, okay. Uh, sir, I, I thank you for your time. I'm going to hand it over to Bill now.
3: Yeah, uh, I just want to emphasize that rhetoric is the art of persuasion, and I think you are looking uh, for the art of truth-seeking, which is uh, the inductive method or the deductive method. I mean, that's epistemological. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, you know, we're talking about something different.
1: Yeah, well, uh, but here. basically we, we agree that those are two different things, that persuading an audience is different from examining the truth, unfortunately. You know, that's just the reality we're presented with. And Yeah, and actually,
3: you know, Plato had a huge issue with that. He hated uh, rhetoric. Uh, he slammed it in the gorgias uh, as the tool of the wicked, right, Be- precisely because it's so effective at deceiving People, right, he softened up a little bit, uh, you know, later in his career with the Faye address, where uh, he just says, "Okay, well, you know, in the hands of a good person, you know, rhetoric can be a good tool." Uh, mm. But you know, uh, but, it's, but, well, it, we- you know, it's long been known that yes, rhetoric uh, is a dangerous tool, and that's why my I personally uh, try and educate people about it because it's so important, uh, you know, to understand it to protect yourself. From it, and, and and the fact of the matter is, is I mean, we're all uh, of the libertarian bent, I think, uh, on this show. Mm. Uh, but the fact is, the statists are the masters of rhetoric. We are getting destroyed on the matter of rhetoric. They keep throwing up these Bill Clintons and these Barack Obamas who are masters of rhetoric, and, and we put up Ron Paul's, who I'm sorry, his rhetoric is terrible.
1: So, you think so? Uh, and man, that, that breaks my heart because. We, I'm sorry, discussing? I love Ron
3: Paul too, but you know he's got a high, squeaky voice. He whines a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sorry, I, I agree with him on the logos. Absolutely, and no. it's, you know, and the logic is absolutely important to you know to master and know the truth. You know, especially if you want to be a good person and make positive changes in the world, which uh, you know parents want to do, and and parents want to do. Uh, but unless we do it effectively. We're not. We're just wasting energy, kind of spinning our wheels, right? Yeah. So that's what I, the point I, of rhetoric is.
1: It, yeah. I mean, and that what do have to, to a bit be right? Because I was speaking with a friend just recently about that very topic. The way that, to us, whether Ron Paul were wearing a jumpsuit or whatever, we not like those visual. Those other elements are almost irrelevant to us. But that, but that puts us in the minority, I guess. And most people really do. They they find appeal in those other elements. So. So we've got, we've got a, we've got a, a problem there. Any other, any other comments on the debate? Did you find my article was accurate in its presentation or do you think I was misleading at all?
3: Well, I, you know, I, it, it was accurate as far as it, it went. It just didn't kind of look at things the way that, uh, that I do and that, uh, I, sure. I think is, uh, you know, useful from the rhetorical uh, perspective. You know, and, you know, and just within logos too, uh, there are good approaches and bad approaches. Like, I, like, Captain Lost that, Exchange uh, just in the terms of the logos, uh, hmm. you know, because uh, he. Because, all right, as I was saying, logos can be divided into the logic and, and uh, which is the deductive method, and to uh, the scientific method, which is induction. Uh, okay. And the, the thing is, is that
1: actually, hey, so that's the music plan Tune out, uh, when Bill. It, when Bill, it, when Bill it I'm going to I'm going to have induction. to bring you back. Don't oh, yes, go anywhere, okay. folks. If you want to call in, one eight hundred three one three nine four four three. We'll be right back. <laughs> oh man um, i 've just introduced that clip that bumper music to this show and that 's a beautiful old song from new Zealand actually if you haven 't heard it dave dobbin it's he 's a great artist anyway so we, getting back to Bill, he was saying that even in the logos uh, part of the not just logic but the broader you could say argumentation uh, not not the alternative components of rhetoric, uh, Kaplan actually failed or fell down. And I want to get him to explain it. We've got someone holding on line, too. We'll get to that that caller. Sure, so but I'll, I want, make it, I'll make it brief. Yeah, um, yeah. I
3: think Kaplan failed because in the Logos type of thing, uh, he resorted to statistics. And the fact is people just don't listen to statistics because they know statistics lie. They know that mm. um, on, any, on any given issue, that, I, that both sides have their studies and, the, and what have you. So when he is kind of blabbing on and on and on about statistics, he's basically just saying, uh, I'm a professor, I'm a professor, I'm a professor. That's what people are hearing. It's, it's kind of an, an ethos, almost a mm. resource ethos. But when you, when you, what's persuasive when it comes to logos is what uh, the other guy did, which is to, one, present uh, a, um, like a microeconomic, uh, logical, inductive argument. Uh, you know, which he did. This is the law of supply and demand. It may be maybe, workers, inc- maybe
1: an incorrect argument, but people people still bought it. In my view,
3: it's absolutely incorrect because he held everything else equal, and nothing else holds equal. Right? When more people come, they and even, create even, new jobs even- for themselves, etc. But Kaplan didn't argue at that level. But the point yeah. is, is that uh, okay. his yeah. opponent—that's something that people can understand, right? People don't hmm. understand a bunch of gobbledygook about statistics. They understand a you know a something like that which is uh, constructed in a way that uh, they can wrap their heads around they do understand supply and demand uh it's a fallacious argument for the reasons that i mentioned but pe- you know but it works on people sure. uh and you know and the thing is is that people don't respond again to this academic style of argument that kaplan is used to and falls back upon in this sense what i would have done was to find strong anecdotes right anecdotes are uh, a no-no in logical discourse because uh you know it's a fallacy Uh, But in rhetoric, they're very important. They get people Mm. in the proper frame of mind to receive your argument. So they're very important.
1: That's a good point. I didn't see, in that debate, I didn't see any reference to some great entrepreneur who had to relocate to the United Kingdom or Canada, for example. Why didn't we hear that? That,
3: Or uh, Jeffrey Tucker had a great argument about the minimum wage, where he recounted a story of his youth where he worked with a retarded boy and loved mm -hmm. it, but the boy got cut loose because of minimum wage law, and the guy that was employing him, it was just charity, really, but he couldn't afford to give that much charity, right? I mean, but that's the type of argument that really resonates with people, uh, yeah. you know, not the statistics that fly back and forth. So right. in Logos, I think if people need to understand that, and Kaplan didn't understand that, so you're, you're going to lose it. If the o- audience doesn't understand what you're saying, and it's just blah, 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 look at me, I'm a professor, versus something gotcha, they man. can wrap their heads around um, and, uh, you know, maybe relate to a personal if, anecdote if... In- Right, and gonna, I'm not sure
1: win. whether, you yeah, I'm not sure whether you saw this. This one, there was one counterexample that that Kaplan said that well, women entered the workforce over the last forty years, but he, but for whatever reason, that just didn't stick. I don't know why. But I wanna, I wanna get to Joe in Pennsylvania. Joe, please go ahead.
6: Oh, hey, Fergus. Um, yeah, the one thing I'm not hearing uh, in this, and I think sure. is critical, is. The so-called patriot movement needs a major paradigm shift. Um, you know, yes. you're talking to an audience there that probably would agree that government's extremely corrupt and gotten evil, and yet they think that it can somehow be reformed. And if mm. you're a believer in the fact that, in the idea that government can be reformed, um, you favor, uh, you know, guarding the borders, that, because that's one of the quote-unquote legitimate functions of government. Right. So... You know, this, uh, in all fairness to Kaplan, he was up against it.
1: He, yes, He, he was. was behind the eight ball from the start. Um, yes. Because who was who, 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 who supporting up. him? He's got both conservatives and liberals against him, it seems. Exactly. Even though he, he argued the opposite. You know, and as far as, uh, you know, the ethos, if he, you know,
6: basically the problem was that lo- those in the patriot movement, whether they want to admit it or not, they're still state worshippers. Mm. Uh, They haven't, and and I was one of them a short time ago. Okay. Uh, I've just become a voluntarist very recently, and um, I heard you talking about uh, Jeff Tucker. Jeff Tucker's also a voluntarist. Correct. And if you argue it from a voluntarist approach, and, you know, people have to realize the same government that can guard the borders can set up border so-called border checkpoints a hundred miles north of the border, which are nothing more yeah, than uh, fishing expeditions.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, Joe. Let me let me just bring that one back to you because I agree. I'm I'm very concerned about this. That on the one hand, many people, and you can say the patriot movement or the liberty movement, are concerned about the police state, but then they don't seem to recognize that this border control is building the police state right here. We're going to have uh, fingerprinting on exit exit to the country. We're going to have uh, in, inland checkpoints. We already have them, and we're going to have this e-verify mandatory, which means that there's absolutely no anonymity to your employment. Exactly. You know, um,
6: you know where I. It, it, it's funny that this came on because where I work, they just the, the INS came in and just they absolutely got rid of about 80 percent of the workforce that were so-called illegal immigrants. Which th- that term, Brian. basically, you have a group of people calling human beings illegal. Um,
1: well. Like yeah, I, I don't, I don't like that. That we're getting tied up in words again because yeah. someone who breaks law is illegal. But I just say that law is an unjust law, and you're acting in civil disobedience. Well, yeah,
6: and law is the opinion of a bureaucrat backed up by a gun. Period. That's that's all it is, and people need to start. Re- people, I think we're heading in that direction, but it's you know a little slow. Sure. Uh, you know. and, and
3: that, you know what, and honestly, if that's your goal, uh, prepare to be disappointed, my friend. I mean, I also am an anarchist or voluntarist or however you want to put it. Sure. Um but I, I've come to realize, and I have a tremendously high conversion rate amongst my colleagues. I've, I've converted a lot of people, uh, to, you know, more free market, more, uh, liberal points of view, but it's a long process. And, uh, it's, uh, a long even to this point, people don't want to let go. You're basically talking the difference between minarchism and anarchism. Uh, and that is it's, a huge leap for many, many things, sir. It
6: is a leap, but, you know, the main thing is to not let them off the hook as far as a gun. It might not happen in my lifetime, but we're headed in that direction because, right, uh, there, there's maybe somebody guessed about 7,000 volunteers in this country, which is a low <laughs> number, percentage
1: wise. <laughs> well, Joe, uh, but, I, I actually would dispute those numbers. I just want to, I want you to, do you mind rounding up your comments there?
6: Yeah. I mean, the more we expose government as the gun in the room, the more that, uh, you know, the, the arguments for border, uh, patrol are going to be seen as statism. And when it's seen as statism, uh, then there's big lost, you know. Okay, yeah. Joe, you know, I really, I I really appreciate with, you, I
3: with, appreciate with you, Paul, and I'm, I'm going to hand it up to Bill. Terms. Okay, go no. ahead, Bill. I was saying, if you're in rhetorical terms, though, you, you know, th- it doesn't make much sense to make that your goal, right? Because rhetoric is about persuading the audience. You kind of know that the audience is not going to come to that position uh, anytime that, soon, if at all.
1: No, they're, no, they're uh, not. That, that's true.
3: Yeah, so it's, to me, it's just not that effective. So, you know, in, in those cases, I usually just kind of accept the minarchist terms because, let's face it, if we worked hand-in-hand hand with the minarchists for a long time, we could get a lot done that we both would be happy with. And then it's kind of like arguing what happens at the finish, right? Do we do we just eliminate these last few functions or do we keep them, right? I mean, but we can eliminate a lot of stuff and uh, and help a lot of people, by working together, you know, with the minarchists. So I don't usually hassle minarchists too much. You know, uh, right. I know plenty this,
1: of this particular issue, I'll just say, Bill, this particular issue, I get, I don't know if I want to call it hate mail, but very strong emails against me about it. And so I, I recognize that this freedom of movement element of liberty is one that is particularly disputed. And the the point that I wanted to make in my article, which I guess I didn't make clear enough, and maybe I should have spent a day or two rethinking it, uh, which I didn't, but the point I wanted to make is that just as you were referring to there, the audience already had these, you could say, embedded assumptions coming into the debate that you, that, that that that's tilted the debate against an open-border scenario. And I don't know how you would unravel those in one night. You said that's a very difficult task.
3: Well, you know, you, you take it step by step. So first you kind of deconstruct the arguments that the uh, opponent is making, and you refine your own to include more anecdotes, to include more uh, inductive uh uh, like stories and uh, ways of getting your point across, you know. Like for example, uh, I thought Kaplan aired when his opponents he allowed his opponents to be successful in painting this idea in the in people's head that uh, immigrants are going to take your job, right? There's this constant fear that people are, you know, so uh, that yeah, immigrants have, have, are going to take a job, uh, but him. people don't think about it how it actually manifests in their real life uh, uh, so I, that's how i would do. i'd be like well listen think about it you know we're, what well, you so do just
1: hold there bill we're hard against oh, okay. the top of the hour and i'm gonna see if we, oh, can, we can bring you back <laughs> next segment and we're gonna push back my next sure. guest a little bit okay so just hold there folks i want to hear means- your opinions on this uh, this is an important sure. topic you know the key theme of the stateless man so don't hesitate to call in the number is 1-800-313-9443 hold stay there this is the stateless man Welcome back to The Stateless Man. It's my pleasure to be with you. Uh, if you want to call in, the number is 1-800-313-9443. We're speaking with Bill Mullen, uh, my expert on rhetoric, and we are examining a recent debate about uh, open borders or freedom of movement, uh, not necessarily precisely, but freedom of movement to take a job anywhere. And I wrote about this recently on the blog of the Pan Am Post. Uh, the problem was that I observed this debate, which is about two hours and I thought the uh, opponents of the motion to allow people to go anywhere, I thought they did. Um, their arguments were very weak, and yet they won outright comfortably. Uh, but Bill has been explaining that basically they were much more personable. They presented arguments that people could understand, uh, even if they were based on fallacy, uh, and they uh, showed a more relatable or honest or humble presence uh, versus the yes, professor. Yes, and
3: Kaplan made a bit made an error in in responding statistically so much
1: yeah yeah that that is a problem and the the final point which we had a, we had a call i think joe from pennsylvania who made a great point which is that you could say the patriot or liberty movement in the united states or you could say paleo conservatives don't necessarily get behind this um freedom of movement idea and uh he wants to sort of change that because they're he, he believes they're statists we we then took that back, or uh, well, brought that back to the actual issue at hand, is is how do you appeal to an audience when you've got an hour or two on a certain night? And my this is my concern too that when you go to an event like that, people just seem to have this assumption that citizens are more valuable than non citizens, and I don't I don't really understand that, but that's just the way it seems to be. And secondly, that people who are citizens are, have entitlements against you. That is to say that they should, you should be required to pay for their health care or education or welfare, whatever it may be, housing. How do you address those problems?
3: Well, I think you work with it, uh, especially if you have kind of an understanding ahead of time. Uh, you know, you can kind of craft your argument, as Kaplan clearly did, by trying to take that pathos uh, you know, element at the beginning. Um, but, you know, in his responses, you know, again, he just keeps falling back on that academic style uh, of argumentation, which is fine, you know, with your colleagues in that setting, but for a popular mm. audience, it just doesn't work. And to me, what you do is you respond in ways, not statistically, but in ways that, the, that resonate with the audience. And so when we left before, I was explaining the example that uh, when the one side is saying, "Well, these guys are going to come in and take your job," and that immediately resonates with people because that like sparks a fear response, mm. and you know they start nodding their heads and they hear it a lot, so they start nodding their heads. Well, I, I, I personally would deconstruct that. I'd be, I would say, "Well, listen, can an untrained, non-English-speaking immigrant do what you do?" I would ask you, "Honest, can can someone like that do what you do?" And in most cases, the answer is no. That person can't do what what that person does. It's too skilled a position. So I ask, you know, these people look around, where do you actually see immigrants? When is it when you go to the U-Haul and there's a guy out there with a sign saying, we'll carry your furniture for $20 an hour, right? When when a bunch of guys show up to mow your lawn, are they immigrants or are they Americans, right? When when you're at a restaurant and someone is bussing your table not the waiter, because the waiter is a skilled position, but the guy who's bussing your table or making Mm. your coffee that, that guy's an immigrant. And I, tr- I would point out to people, these are guys making your life easier. When you want to work, uh, or an opportunity comes up to make some money or to go out with your husband, who's going to watch the kids? Maybe it's that woman yeah. who's running a black market babysitting.
1: You're, you're, uh, you're operation. Right. You know, these people make our res- lives better and allow Bill, us to do let, what we do. Yeah, I got you, man. Let me, let me respond to that because you're right. That big argument, the big argument that they're taking your jobs, Kaplan and his uh, colleague... Debating for the motion failed big time, not because yeah. the logic was on, on was not on their side, but I mean they presented they presented data and only a little bit of data, and actually his colleague almost almost held up this 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 problem. So Kathleen was kind of on his own in this instance. But I would have just said this: Are you wanting to deport ATMs? ATMs take steal the jobs of bank tellers, right? right. But we all acknowledge right. that ATMs are a good idea because we realize that this lowers costs and opens up jobs elsewhere. And to go down this line is to be some sort of prehistoric luddite basically to go back to before the industrial revolution. I don't like I don't know why he didn't say something like that. He didn't just say that this sort of logic is ridiculous, but apparently it flies. And so he he got he let people get away with that. And also the key point I usually make is that let's say a bunch of immigrants come in who can't speak English. Well, we need skilled managers who are bilingual and who can speak English. We there are, there are more jobs in managerial positions for people like like me who can do that. What you know so th- there's actually a huge swelling of higher level positions for people who can manage the new arrivals. But so basically that that point went down. What about I mean were there any other areas? I mean like I said targeting these you you might not think you might think targeting these base assumptions is not the way to go, but that's how I would try and do it. I would go what is exactly a citizen? Why is this person important? you know Where are these borders? Do you know that citizens can be born outside of the country i mean why why do we even have this um preferential treatment Is that just too much for people uh
3: you know I wouldn't say that's entirely ineffective. I mean those are powerful uh, logos type arguments uh and they will resonate with people and I feel like though i i mean i uh, that's what i personally uh uh, uh, lean towards is the, the logo side of things. Uh, but I, I, you know, I've come to learn that, uh, they're effective, but only in small portions.
1: Sure. I mean, we, so- we, 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 we have a, we have, do you have a call? So Mike in Maryland, I want you to, want you to get in before the break. So Mike, please go ahead.
7: I'm former vice president and Hello?
1: Yes, Mike. Uh, do you have a question or comment for Bill Mullen?
7: Uh, yes. Uh, listening to, to this, uh, debate, if you will, the show today, Yes, it just reinforces what, my belief that how, how and why I will never ever consider myself a libertarian because <laughs> the logical conclusion of libertarianism <laughs> is you have a few elite millionaires living in gated communities, and then and then you have a country swamped with with third world people and um, well, making a I Entirely with
3: that formulation, how, how did what we said? lead you to that conclusion, May ask? That's so well, first of
7: all, you're, you're talking about open borders. Do you realize, yes. and, and it's a fact, illegal aliens, and they are here illegally, take jobs sure. away from Americans, and that's Oh-oh. disinformation and lies that you guys <laughs> are spreading. And how many of them are criminals? How many of Whoa. them are youngsters? How many Ill- drunk, illegal aliens routinely Mike. kill Americans yeah. on the highway? 70% Mike. of okay. the prisoners... Yeah. And federal prisons are illegal
1: aliens. That's Mike, Mike, no, Mike let, let me let me respond to that, Mike. Mike, I really appreciate your passion and your call. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to cut off there. We don't have much time, Bill. Please respond.
3: Well, you know, I think that the basic assumption there is that jobs are a zero sum game. So the more people that are here, uh, you know, the more competition for that set number of jobs, and that's just wrong. Uh, The more people that show up, the more people, ideas they have to generate money. They become entrepreneurial. They create new jobs for themselves, and these jobs make our lives better, right? That guy who carries my furniture makes my life better. The guy who watches my kids for cheap makes my life better. No one's taken my job. My job is too skilled for this immigrant so uh, to, to take it. I feel like the argument that this fellow is putting forward okay, is. Okay, well, we, we are we're getting another unlocked, call. Unlocked. I want to
1: get Art in. Bill, I'm going to hold it. Art wants to get in before the break, sure. so Art, please go ahead with your question or comment.
5: Uh, yeah, you know, I, I am really disturbed here. I find it absolutely appalling that someone promoting open borders would be on RBN because let's face facts <laughs> here. Open borders eliminates national sovereignty. Once national sovereignty is gone, Whoa. personal property yep. rights are gone. You make me sick.
1: Whoa, ah, uh, okay, we'll leave it there. Let me respond actually. Did you know that we actually had open borders for most of U.S. history? There are open borders between the states. There's open travel between the U.S. and Puerto Rico. The, the, the notion that the, uh, that, the, that we are anti-U.S., even though open borders is a big part of the U.S. tradition, is just, I, I think, crazy. The music is playing when we have to get to the break. Just hold there, uh, Bill, because I want you to have to respond to these. These are just compel response. We've got a half an hour to go, so just don't go in no folks. Problem. I appreciate your calls. This is The Saveless Man. Well, welcome back. We're pursuing liberty beyond borders, and I just am, I'm very glad to have those callers in here on RBN. This is Independent Media. Your voice is welcomed. Whether you agree with me or not, it's fine. I'm really glad to have it, and strongly so. We have limited time. I'm going to get right to Bill so he can respond to those comments, and I'll give my, my own comments before we get on to our next guest. Bill go Yes, I'll be nice. very
3: brief in respect for your next guest. Uh, you know, I just want to say that I, you know I emphasize with your last callers. I know where they're coming from. I want them and everyone to understand that we are on the same side. I take these uh, views because I think it's better for the average worker, not worse. If it was worse, I wouldn't support it. I think it's better for the average worker, and the reason why is because uh, the number of jobs expands. These immigrants they, that come, they don't have the the capital to offer any kind of sophisticated uh, production, right? They offer services, okay? And these services are very helpful. They're, they don't challenge your job, my job, really anybody's job. Uh, you know, and I understand kind of thinking in this holistic sense of, uh, you know, in economic uh, statistics where, you know, the unemployment might go down. Uh, I, I, I say that's wrong because the, amount, the number of jobs doesn't stay the same uh these guys are entrepreneurial they create jobs they create ways to serve us it makes our lives better uh, it, not only and not only our lives but their lives too right so i mean mm-hmm. uh, from it's a win-win situation just like all economic transactions are win-win they, it creates more win-win transactions for for everybody uh, we're on the same side okay we just have right. we just have a disagreement on uh, on the way things work uh, and you know if in if we discuss this, I bet we can come to
1: agreement. And I I'll, I'll say too, one of the ironies of this discussion is that both you and I are middle class. You know, we're not we're not the wealthy elite, and you are starting your own small business. So uh, you're, I'm, you, I'm
3: far you're, from middle class, because I'm the poorest person you know. I'm uh, lower class by far. I'm, right. I'm uh, supporting a family of five as a waiter. Uh, we've made the conscious decision to uh, have only one, one income. And not let other people raise our family. So, yeah, now I'm trying to do the food truck and be more entrepreneurial uh, and make that money. But I'm just saying, you know, I'm not not kind of elitist. I'm not even a a middle class guy. I'm a working class poor guy. And I think immigration would make my life better and it would make the lives better of anyone in my situation.
1: And the people that disagree
3: just don't don't quite understand, I think. And I I bet if we talked about it, we could come to agreement.
1: Got gotcha, you, mate. We're, Bill, I appreciate you staying on so long. It's been been great to have you. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks again. Great
3: talking to you. Thank, thank you so much. For, uh, and I apologize to your next guest for monopolizing his time. Take care. Run on,
1: guys. There, there's so much I could add to that, and I want to say that if if you want to engage in this discussion more, uh, go to the Stateless Man Facebook page. Just Facebook.com/slash/The Stateless Man. I'll be posting my article on nativism and freedom of movement there. I want to say it does sadden me because the U.S. Uh, prior to the 20th century actually had a legacy of open immigration and the open immigration between or open borders between these individual states is one of the greatest gifts that this country has this freedom of movement between whatever state you want and that's not a that doesn't undermine its sovereignty and the, the fact is like i said that until basically until after the first world war there weren't any restrictions there were some limited attempts but until that time people didn't even have passports so you, you really couldn't track people and I think this, this one of the saddest elements, and this is this is what uh, the caller mentioned before the top of the hour, is that by imposing this central planning, this big government immigration policy, this militarized border, you're basically building a police state at home. You're building a, the surveillance apparatus. You're building internal checkpoints. And I think that's really sad. It's an undermining of the American ideal of privacy, freedom. So I I have to move on to our next guest, but. There's so much more I say about this. I mean, I, I want to keep on going. You know, that immigrants are twice as likely to start businesses. They create jobs. On, on and on and it goes, this, this myth about crime. Immigrants have far lower rates of crime, in fact, on the order of one-fifth. So we should be bringing in more immigrants for lower rates of crime. But I've, I've really got really to move on. And uh, we have a, a, a guest all the way from New Zealand. He's been extremely generous with his time. Uh, this is very early in the morning. It's 4.30 or 4.23 in the morning in New Zealand. His name is Don Richards. He is with the organisation Positive Money, New Zealand, and he has been advocating monetary reform. It's a big problem uh, we have right now: central, uh, centrally planned uh, currencies. We have reserve banks, and we have fractional reserve fiat currencies. This fractional reserve banking is uh, extremely problematic when you don't even have any real reserves. You've just got uh, fiat currencies uh, which are baseless, bat- without any backing underlying the, fiat, the, the fraction. So there really isn't a fraction. It's all just all just phony money. So, I want to bring on uh, Don Richards. He is, let me get his bio. I have this written down here. He is the co-founder of Positive Money New Zealand and he's also a Wellington he's been Wellington Environmentalist of the Year. Uh he's a quality uh research manager. Let me get this one here. Right n- right now he is he works as quality environmental manager for the Building Research Association of New Zealand and I uh heard him interviewed on a clip now uh don we're gonna i'm gonna welcome you on the show and we're gonna play a brief clip from your appearance on a television show in new zealand so thanks for joining the stateless man and a and short notice that's quite a lot, right now I, ha- I have with the studio do you want to do you wanna play that clip from a television show in new zealand on tvnz which is the uh major state broadcaster? i don't know how this got through but let's roll with that clip
4: Well you might have a big fat mortgage and a big fat interest rate to service that mortgage I know I certainly do but what if we told you that the money the bank lent you doesn't actually exist You're paying interest on a loan that's been conjured up out of thin air Sounds crazy?
1: Watch this story by Heather De Allen People are
4: becoming more and more indebted Paying the price that they can't afford simply to have a a home It was like a light went on The banks created money out of thin air Just in case you didn't get that here it is again The problem with money is that it's created by private overseas owned banks out of thin air and then lent to you and I at compounding interest Created not really like this More like this But ultimately, these numbers do represent this, the hard stuff. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking banks don't print money. The government prints the money. Or maybe the Reserve Bank prints the money. Well, that's what I thought too, but it turns out that we are all wrong. The banks create the loan out of nothing and then give you the money that they don't have. Don Richards and Sue Hamill, a normal Wellington couple who want that sort of lending to stop. But before we go then, let's get our heads around how this works. Let's pretend for a moment that I'm the bank and you want to buy a house that costs $500,000. So you'll need to give me $50,000 as a deposit. Okay, so there's my deposit. So I need $450,000 from you. That's right. So where am I going to get the money from? I just go into... Because you obviously don't have it. No, that's okay. right. I just go into the computer, type in 450, hit enter. There's your money. There's $450,000. You've just made $450,000 out of absolutely nowhere. That's right.
1: Right, now, before we go to the break, we've got about a minute to play with. Are there any, do you have any concerns about that clip and that they misrepresented you at all?
8: No, no. it that, that was very good. It was uh, spot on.
1: Right, uh, and so, and what has been the reaction that you've received your organization since that time?
8: Well, it went global, and uh, people are coming out of the woodwork. They're saying, finally, somebody understands what's really going on. It's of, it's a, it's a, it takes a bit of time to get your head around it, that money is created out of thin air and lentic compounding interest. Right. And uh, we've just received uh, a lot of support.
1: That is just great. I want to say that I commend you for this work. And we're going to, we've got the next two segments to play with, which is great. I, I know we come on later with you, but I think this is just such an important issue. I've taught economics at the university level. I was a teaching assistant in, uh, at the University of Waikato. And there's plenty I could add to this, but we are hard against the bottom of the hour now. And so don't go anywhere, folks. We're going to be examining alternatives to the fiat currency status quo. This is the stateless man. Welcome back to the Stateless Man. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's my pleasure to be broadcasting and to have a wonderful guest all the way from New Zealand, Don Richards. He is with Positive Money New Zealand, changing the way money works in New Zealand. And, but it's obviously a broader topic than just there. We're all subject to this, uh, you might say hegemony of fractional reserve banking, but it's not real. It's not even fractional reserve banking. It is fractional fiat currency banking. So there's nothing. We've got this, this imaginary money. Overseeing other imaginary money, and I think it's just uh, an embarrassment. I, I think the the fact that we don't know enough about it is the problem, really. So, Don, I want to, I want you to just go ahead and explain. Let's see if we can give a bit of a brief overview for people who are not necessarily acquainted with what fractional reserve banking is in the current context. Do you want to just explain the basis for how it proceeds from a a central bank, and then how retail banks have a certain amount of physical currency, and then have this like airy fairy fractional money
8: Yeah, well that's right. Um, here in New Zealand we have a central bank, the Reserve Bank, which actually is controlled by the government, but most uh, central bank banks are actually
1: independently owned. problem we that, that, have here in New as, Zealand as, as, as is the case of, in, the, in the United States, yes. Yeah. The problem here is that the Reserve
8: Bank isn't actually doing what it's designed to do. It's actually sitting on its hands and allowing foreign control banks to come in and issue our currency as debt. So all our money goes into circulation as debt. If, say, for example, somebody had a million dollars, that means that people need to be in debt to the tune of a million dollars to have the uh, million dollars that the other guy has in circulation. It's 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 crazy. It's immoral, and it's creating all sorts of uh, inconsistencies. There's a, a wealth gap between the, the the vast majority of the population who have very sure. little, and the few that have uh, a, a lot of money.
1: Brian, let me just break that down a bit too. I think I think this perhaps confusion over what money is and is not is uh, a big, just enormous problem uh, because I think if people really understood the way the monetary system works, both in New Zealand and here in the United States, there would be a much greater degree of urgency for change. What what the retail banks have is they do have some physical cash, uh, coins and bills. That is their reserve. And as we know, that reserve is really just a, an artifact that at one time those notes actually resemb, re, represented gold and silver or other precious metals. Now, over time, banks have managed to bring that disconnect basically in an act of theft. They have basically stolen the precious metals that were owned by the customers and said, well, if you give us a note, we'll just give you another note back. So there's an, from the, from the beginning, there's a, there's a problem as to how this money originated. Then, now that, now that we just have this physical cash circulating, you might think that when the bank owns, loans you $100,000 whatever, they actually get $100,000 of cash to put in an account or give to you. That's not the case. In fact, they have very small percentages of reserves, between zero and 10%. And when they say, we've loaned you $100,000, they say, okay, so you you've got an account here, Digits. We'll just add hundred thousand dollars to that account, and you can't like, you can't just withdraw hundred thousand dollars in cash. Uh, that that is not that simple. They have Im- impro- impro- improvised measures to make it such that those digits din- are not backed by actual currency. They're just digits, but these digits act as the currency. That they they they're what we use to engage in transactions. And I think this is just it, it does seem very strange or hard to believe. And that's what people were getting at in this video, this news clip with Don, that few people really understood this and it just seemed very, although it is true, it seemed very hard to believe. Do you want to respond to the notion that people are now waking up or are much more aware?
8: Yes, they are. And uh, we we have the IMF coming out saying that this system is unsustainable. Only about 2% of the money in circulation is actually cash, notes, or coins. The rest is Mm. electronic money that's generated by uh, the banks we have um noted economists coming out saying this is wrong um, so the word is getting out that we are part of an international movement called uh, the international movement for monetary reform and there are groups around the globe all uh, going for reform to actually have the banks have the money Uh, that they need to lend out rather than creating it electronically because it's just flooding the world with debt. We have the current generation growing up with student loans, with having to save for their retirement, with uh, trying to buy a home, and they're becoming debt slaves to the banks and they will never get out of debt. It's just crazy. It doesn't have to be that way. There is more than enough money to go around but it's in the hands of a very few who lend that out at compounding interest. And it means that the money that we should have to pay for the doctors, to pay for health, to pay for education is being siphoned off to pay interest on money that doesn't exist.
1: It is that bizarre that we live in that reality. It is true. And one thing... I'm not sure whether you're aware of this, but there is a housing affordability index that it gives across the developed world or the English speaking world. And this shows, you could say, affordability. And it takes the median household income and it says how many times, how many times would you need to multiply that to get to the median house price in certain cities, right? And they say that three and less or three and under, so three times, so let's say you're earning an income of your combined income of seventy five thousand uh, dollars, three times that would be two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars, so a house of two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars or less would be they say affordable given given that income, uh, but in fact, in places like New Zealand and Canada, let me get this up. the median in New Zealand is six point four so if you 're making an income let's say let 's say you 're making an income of $75,000 actually this is going to be a difficult multiplication but let's say you're making an income of $50,000 six times that 6.4 would mean that the house price you face is uh $320,000 that's that, that's a combined total household income so if you consider interest on top of that you're basically spending a decade of your income on just buying your house and I, I think this That's is right,
8: Burgess. And it, yeah. it, 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 as little as two, uh, 20 years ago, the uh, affordability index here in New Zealand was two point five.
1: Are you So it's serious? gone from two
8: point five to six in a mere twenty
1: years. That's just crazy. There are comp- compounding factors here. One is that we have this re- constrained supply of housing. That zoning, green belts, controls on where you can build are uh, severely impeding you could say, the availability. At the same time, the capacity of banks to create more of this fractional reserve money is increasing their capacity to lend more, which obviously drives up the price. When everyone has more debt available to them, they can drive up the price. And no one really wins in this other than the people who are collecting the interest on this and perhaps people who already own the homes who bought it back when they were affordable. And you, you say... You say right. and it's,
8: it's in the bank's best interest to keep uh, pumping the, the price up. Because the shareholders, the stockholders want a better return on their investment and they really don't care uh, whether uh, people can afford to pay back the home because if uh, you default on the loan, they will repossess the house, kick you out in the street and uh, if they uh, go into too much hop themselves the government will bail them out. So they win on the way up, they win on the way down and we are letting them get away with it.
1: We are. Now, I know you have a particular reform plan. Do you want to just... We've got about a minute to play with. Do you want to explain just what what your proposed reform would be?
8: Well, it's based on the Chicago plan, which was put before Roosevelt in the Great Depression. Banks need to have the money that they lend out. If they don't have that money, then they can't lend out that uh, amount of money to you and I. Now, if they don't have money for that, they can actually go to the government and borrow it rather than create it out of thin air. And that way, it constrains the inflation on housing prices.
1: I gotcha. Well, look, we are, we're gonna, I'm going to bring you on to the next segment because there are other aspects I want to consider, such as the presence of Bitcoin. But uh, don't go anywhere, folks. If you want to call in... is the line. We've got uh, Don here all the way from New Zealand discussing alternatives to the banking status quo. This is The Stateless Man. Welcome back to The Stateless Man. This is your host, Fergus Hodgson, and thanks so much for tuning in this morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. And we have a man here, Don Richards, all the way from New Zealand his website is uh he is with uh positive money and that's just positivemoney.org.nz and we're going through his uh, concerns and which i uh believe are legitimate about uh the nature of money that we have to deal with and the alternatives so just we just we had limited time before the break but he was just saying that he advocates some sort of restriction on the fractional nature of retail banking that you actually would have to have physical currency Don, why, why are you not more favouring towards, let's say, Bitcoin or completely free banking?
8: Well, because we we do need a national currency to engage in trade. So why, why, why do we
1: but, but but you but you know that before the 1930s, for example, Canada didn, did not even have a central bank. There are many oh, countries in the world. That, there, there are many countries in the world that don't have central banks. Uh, Panama, for example. But, yeah, I mean, that's
8: true. Well, look, we we. Saying uh, that we consider that a central bank is necessary. It may not be in all circumstances, but the model we're working on it does have a central bank to allow other banks to actually trade and exchange money. So Mm-mm. we say that it does need some form of uh, control, but the control would be in the hands of the government, which everyone would benefit from the commonwealth rather than the few who are uh, getting obscenely wealthy at the expense of everyone else. The problem with the current banks is as soon as you put money into the bank, that money no longer becomes yours. It is the property of the bank, and they can do whatever they want with it. So there is no control at the moment. It is open season on... All mm. form of speculation, and we just need to get back to basics
1: and what do you, what do you think about or recommend on for people to do as individuals, recognizing this system until reforms come? do you have any thoughts about how people can manage their own finances
8: well the, 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 the way this, the, the whole thing is is geared if you pay back your debt. It actually reduces the money in circulation, mm. so we really are screwed. There the, the really is very few places to hide. Mm. Um, you could you could uh, maybe buy gold, but that just pushes the price of the metal up, and it uh, becomes another form of speculation. It's uh, the whole thing is rotten, Fergus. So Ryan. really, um, there, there is. No way of, um, avoiding the system.
1: But don't, don't you agree? <clears throat> I'm not sure whether you are following Bitcoin closely. I mean, it, it has, has limited presence in New Zealand. I'm, I'm in contact with someone who has a Bitcoin, you could say, circulation group in Auckland, but has very limited traction, if any, uh, in the country as of yet. But don't you see some hope for people who are just coming with alternative forms of currency? Even now, there are, yeah, there, sure. are bank, no. there are bank accounts denominated in gold.
8: Yeah, that's right. Look, Bitcoin is an, an option, and it, it actually just depends on confidence. If the market or if people have confidence in the, the Bitcoin phenomenon, then it will work. Um, currently, people have confidence in the current banking system because they assume that the banks have the money uh, mm. to uh, lend out. As soon as Probably that confidence evaporates, the whole thing right. will fall over. It. Just the big uh, what do you call it? Stack of cards. Game. Yeah, it, a stack it, of cards. It, sure,
1: it, it, sure. And and it, it is interesting because I people whether they I guess we the, one of the challenges is that since the nineteen seventies uh, there has been no gold backing at all uh, to these currencies. There's been no actual reserve. They can say reserve bank, but there's no real reserve backing it. And so most of us, I'm including myself here, we've grown up without any alternative. This is just like gravity. It's just the status quo that we know. And so, yeah, we do trust it because we've just grown up with it. But prior to this, uh, money reform was a much more prominent issue. And um, it, it's, good. it's returning, I guess, because people are seeing how inflation is eroding their wealth. It is creating instability. And so, but now that you have this proposal, is there actually any traction in Parliament in New Zealand to to bring forward your proposal and actually enact it?
8: Well, we have got uh, some support from the Green Party. We've got support from a a few of the politicians, but they're waiting for somebody to put their head up uh, and uh, stand up and be counted. So the politicians are afraid of of being laughed at, or they just really don't have a spine. Um, Mm. We do need people who are prepared to stand up and say, this shall not be. But we don't have
1: those the, those people at the moment. If I may respond to that, I think that's one of the problems right now. And we've had Larry White, a prominent economist, a free banking economist here in the United States, on this show. We actually had Don Brash on this show too, and he was discussing how, to begin with, we should at least we should allow, and it is allowed now, to use alternative currencies rather than just the New Zealand dollar. But the let me, let me think back. But basically, this shr- the, the the people in central banks shroud themselves in this elitism that we are economically refined, whatever. And they basically they fund a great deal of the research in economics. So if you have an organization which is extremely wealthy, uh, the Federal Reserve, and in New Zealand's case, the um, the government which works with the Reserve Bank, having such a, a prominent impact on the economic research. Well, no wonder people might feel like they're outsiders broaching this issue. I want to say that there are extremely refined and sophisticated economists who do understand this problem and are speaking out against it. Recently was the 100-year anniversary of the Federal Reserve in the United States, and Larry White and I think George Selgin, Selgin uh, he's, um, I think he's based in the University of Georgia, and they have just shown that the case for the Federal Reserve, as with other central banks, that they can stabilize... The nation or whatever it may be has shown to, has proved to be untrue. And at the same time, the currencies have devalued to such a great degree that they, they can't be trusted. Basically, your wealth has been eroded. So you, you're waiting for people to stand up in New Zealand. How, what are your educational initiatives to actually, you could say raise awareness? Because that's what I guess is really needed. You need some, uh, awareness so that if politicians do broach this, they don't just get laughed out of town and their constituents stand by them.
8: Well, it's it's building a a, a platform to uh, inform people. Uh, information is power. It, this message needs to... People need to hear this message four or five times from different perspectives until they grasp the, the entirety of it. So we are going out and letting the schools know. We've approached the churches. We uh, have approached local government and they're starting to hear it from us and from uh, the IMF. Even the Pope, Pope Francis, is calling for monetary reform. So um, it's now becoming part of the public domain rather than in the fringes. And once the critical mass actually catches uh, up, we will uh, bowl this sucker and create a, a system that is stable
1: not inflationary. Right, I want to say something. I've been speaking <clears throat> with, where is it? Uh, I want to get your full details. It's Don Richards, and his email is just info at nz, and his website, positivemoney.org.nz. In addition, he's part of a broader movement, uh, which is called International Movement for Monetary Reform, or just internationalmoneyreform.org. And, uh, you can go there and they've got lots of quotes of all the many things, ways of organizing banking. The worst is the one we have today <laughs> from the former, former governor of the, the Bank of England. I think, uh, there is a lot to be said about this topic. And I want to say, Don, thanks so much for getting up, you know, early in, early in New Zealand. Have a great new year and, uh, we, we appreciate your time. Thanks, Fergus. Much appreciated. Right. So folks, it, it is, it has been another intense show and I really appreciate the engagement from all of you. If you want to further get in touch with me, you can email me, Ferg at the statelessman. That's just F-E-R-G at thestatelessvan.com. You can also engage with me through Facebook and Twitter at thestatelessvan, uh, or facebook.com forward slash the stateless van. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. I look forward to next week.